Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Thanks so much for, for coming in tonight. Thank you. And, for um, me. Look, we all, all of us performers, know you as a, as a preeminent writer and director and, uh, and, and as a very strong, uh, independent, sometimes sort of provocative voice in Australian theatre and, and on stage. Um, but this new role as a director of the Sydney Festival for three years from, from next year. Uh, is is one that we're all just fascinated to hear about, and uh, congratulations, by the way, Thank and um, welcome back to Sydney. And Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about how it came to happen, and uh, what what the differences are in 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 uh, this, and as opposed to being an artistic director of a, of a theatre company. I think um, I don't know. I remember uh, Bill Brown said this. He said, "With every job you do, you have to be in the constant process of building your boat." or you'll end up shipwrecked at the end. And this constant sense of thinking about what's next and not feeling happy just to be where you are, but building the structures that will get you to the next step and the next set of um, experiences or challenges along the way. And I was running the Queensland Theatre Company going, okay, what's, what's my boat? What's the next thing? Is it looking at the Sydney Theatre Company or the Melbourne Theatre Company or that kind of trajectory, or is it actually looking at a, a much wider cultural canvas to work on? <coughs> And so I started to think about festivals as a way. In fact, I, I was saying that there are maybe three pathways that I could look at doing in my career. One was the, the freelance artist world. And, you know, everyone in this room will know this. You know, if you get one or two gigs a year, you, that's really amazing. Mm. But it's not enough to kind of support your, your, your habit of, of the arts, your career. And so, you know, you have to always kind of supplement. Uh, the idea of kind of curation uh, commentary was a part of the kind of career trajectory for me, thinking, well, how do I build that up? Or this, uh, the idea of, um, uh, like, taking on this kind of bigger cultural canvas thing. Anyway, so, so for me, I was going, okay, I just kept applying for everything. I, I don't know, like three years ago, I did this kind of Sunday night ABC introducing arts docos thing. Mm-hmm. Which was great, just to kind of go out there and say, "What's up? What am I like in front of the television? You know, in the screen? Uh, off I go." And what uh, was it like? It was it, it was nerve wracking. Um, I wrote all my scripts and I was reading teleprompter the whole time, and that sense of feeling for the first time. I I, I started my career as a dancer, long time, like twenty five kilos ago, and, <laughs> and that notion of when I was doing performance realizing how you have to be in it like you actually have to be in the moment and one of the reasons I realized I was not a great performer was that even when I was kind of on stage doing something there was something outside that always took me away from the experience of being on stage and I kind of went oh that's something that will make performing never actually that rewarding for me Mm. that I constantly want to be on the outside not the inside of of performance and so um going back to being in front of a camera mm-hmm. and just it's just an intro to docos it's not like where I had to have character or something but the idea of communicating with the the faceless crowd on the other side of a camera was quite daunting and I found myself you know stumbling over words and not getting ideas clearly or 
retreating outside of the moment with the camera and going, oh, that's what performers are going through all the time. I thought, in fact, I, I kind of went, oh, wouldn't it be good to go back and do some acting to remember what an actor has to go through? Because as a director, um, there's a kind of disconnection. Almost like as a director, you have to uh, lose empathy to ask a performer to go to incredible depths and emotional tor torment and to relive and bring all that material up to work with. And as a director, you just get further and further away from empathising with the performer, you know, because if the moment you empathise is the moment you say, oh, no, don't go there, it's all right, it's, that's too hard. Yeah, and you actually have to step back and go, yeah, yeah, no, no, more, 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 <laughs> or something terrible. So this idea of going, oh, actually, to put yourself in that situation is a great learning experience as well. Um, so, so the difference between, like, running a theatre company, mm -hmm. having the kind of uh, producer's mind on, uh, like where you're producing the work, to having this kind of curatorial or or festival director's mode, is I'm used to having a relationship with an audience. I'm used to having that direct thing where there's something in my unconscious, something in my uh, way of seeing the world that I can communicate to the people who are then doing the work. And I can kind of go, this is what my politics are, this is what my art is, this is what I believe is important in the world. And we can have those kind of conversations in the room or we can um, have... Uh, relationships that are longer term and what I'm finding already is that what I have to do is look at the work artists are already making and through different kind of collections of them mm. that's how I'm going to talk to an audience then I don't know whether the artists uh, agree with my politics I don't know if the artists agree with what I'm thinking about the world you know who are bringing their shows I just know that I'm kind of seeing patterns in, in the work across the, the world and trying to drawing people together. When you talk about, I guess, those three different things, you know, um, creating something and, or, you know, make playmaking mm. a particular production and being a freelance artist, um, being an artistic director of a, of a theatre company, where, which is curatorial mm. in, in, in and of itself, I guess, um, and then branching out to kind of being the curator for a city for a certain amount of time. Um, it, it's quite, they're, they're three quite different things. I'm just wondering, is, is, is the halfway point, how much of a halfway point is being an artistic director of a company in that you're not, everything you do doesn't have your stamp on it, you're bringing in other directors and writers and performers and stuff? Well, I think of it as, as different orbits of responsibility. Like, as a director or a writer, your orbit of responsibility is the artist that you're gathering around you. Yes, you've got to talk to an audience. It's not about distancing the audience, but you go, okay, I, I'm looking after these people and this storytelling. The artistic director of a company, you're going, what's the community that you're working with? The community of artists, the bigger philosophical issues, the leadership role that you have to step up to take. Um, what are the big things that... I, I, I think of artistic directors as the unelected representatives of the, the constituency of artists, right. that we hold these positions and, you know, they're well-paid positions, they're full-time positions. We artistic directors around the country are the highest paid artists in our community, yeah. that you can't be slack about that. Sure. It comes with responsibilities as well. So you do that. Now I'm feeling as an artistic director of a festival, mm -hmm. somehow the responsibility orbit is not just the artists, 
that come into the orbit of, of, of me or the organisation I work for. It's actually about a whole city that's now saying what they want of, of me, what they want of the organisation, and having to balance out the heritage as- aspects of a festival that's 40 years old mm. um, and the kind of artistic... Uh, imperatives of an international arts festival but also Sydney Festival in particular has a summer festival mode it's the kind of let your hair down be out outdoors kind of in, engage with that and that I've, I've, I've also said the Sydney Festival is a disruptor and an enabler that it has to by its very nature break the status quo and prototype different changes along the way and it does that in in different ways so, so uh, one of the things George Street and all that stuff that's happening on George Street. Um, seven years ago, eight years ago, uh, even longer, close to ten years ago, when Fergus Lunaham was doing Festival First Night, mm-hmm. to shut down the city and to show that the citizens could occupy the streets mm-hmm. in a different way, opened up whether you you know whether it's a long bow or not, but opened up the idea that actually we can return that city to a pedestrian city. We can uh, allow the city to. Um, change the way it it's balanced between public transport and private vehicles and the idea of the pedestrian and I think it, the, the the George Street um, public transport thoroughfare has been on the cards for years what is it about Sydney that's changed I think number one there's environmental discussions happening but number two the city has already prototyped typed what that change could be through occupying in an artistic sense and celebrating through our artistic sense a cultural shift that's possible. So there's a direct I think direct so. Link. I think so. I think that if artists aren't at that uh, crest of change, if we aren't prototyping the future, if we aren't creating a vocabulary for change, then what are we? We are distracting people from life, not actually engaging with their imaginations and creativity to push us further forward in a good way. I was uh, fascinated to, to hear your discussion about Sydney, about the kind of timing of the Sydney Festival as well, that it's it's always at the beginning of a year. Um, sort of well, tell us a little bit more about I've that. got this thing that in January the country goes on holiday. Well, let's say December happens and there's this kind of ah, oh, we just let go and the heat allows us to basically let go of everything. Everything becomes relaxed and we also then become receptive. That January is this wonderful time that it's like a cultural New Year's resolution. People go, okay, what am I going to do next? Well, people are ready to turn on. And the festival goes, right, here's something, here's something. And if all the festival does is distract you with some smoke and mirrors and light entertainment, then it's, it's missing that opportunity to engage you intellectually in what's possible, both culturally but also socially in, in your environment. So for me, January is one of those amazing times. It's in... In Brisbane, um, the Brisbane Festival is in September, which is obviously spring. It's the coming out of what we call winter in Brisbane, which is <laughs> quite lovely. Um, uh, but the sense of kind of returning to the world uh, of, of uh, harvest and all those kind of things. And in fact, the Brisbane Festival, if you go back uh, to the Warana Festival, you go back into the 70s to see where it all came from. Uh, Melbourne Festival's in October. It's kind of squeezed between all the other things it can do. But there's something about January that just changes your mindset as Australians. We're ready for something and we are looking for the next set of challenges. 
you know, yes, I'm going to lose 25 kilos. Yes, I'm going to uh, kind of do more with my family or do more with my friends. Or yes, I'm going to read more books. Or yes, I'm going to go to theatre more often. That we are projecting forward and saying, what can we do differently? And the festival's a great way of doing that for me. I mean, your association with Sydney Festival in terms of creating work and, and working on new work is, is pretty you know, impressive. It's like Black Diggers and Sunshine Club and Sapphires, mm-hmm. Aviora. How much of your, and, and there have been some of your you know, greatest successes, how much of that sort of influenced or had to do with your, your feeling about this position? Yeah, I, I had a feeling like um, Sydney Festival was a good fit for me. Um, as a practising artist, oh, here's something too. It, it, it's interesting, this, we're seeing across the country just a slight shift you know, practising artists running festivals. Up until about, you know, two or three years ago, this idea of the professional artistic director of yeah. festivals had really taken over, people who weren't makers. Um, and I think some of the highlights in, uh, in festival history, when we think about Barry Kosky's Adelaide Festival, mm. uh, back in, I'm going to say 98, I think it was. I think that's it right. Was, yeah. um, <coughs> changed the landscape because it, a maker was at the heart of it going, what about and how about and here are my relationships and here are my fascinations. The idea of professional programmers, as we see in arts centres and festivals, and also now we're seeing in our major producing companies, they think differently. And not that that's a good or a bad thing, but when you put a maker in charge, we talk differently about the work, we talk differently about responsibilities, we engage in different conversations. We also have the track record that we say, if something's going a little bit off, off the beaten track, we can be in the room and say, hey, how about, or what about, or, and know that we've got the lived experience to assist artists to make their best work. And my, my experiences with those, those shows you're talking about that are in festivals, have always, always benefited by having collaborators and people who are in the room who go, actually, I think you're about to hit a brick wall. Why don't you just do this? And you go, yep, I trust your judgment on that. How about we go there? Or, and, and kind of grow the work. A, a, a professional programmer doesn't necessarily see that, mm-hmm. that they're looking already at what the sales figures might be, not what the artists are doing. And, and I, I do worry that as a country, and we, we go back to, let's say, well, John Howard really changed the discussion, but also Paul Keating changed it, where we looked at ourselves less as artists and more as, you know, people who make uh, units of activity that have an economic benefit. We've, we've stopped, I think we, we don't talk publicly much about the inherent value of the arts, mm. the, the right to fail, the idea that, um, uh, art, artistic expression and creative kind of um, uh, experiences are important for all people and that we've become this kind of economic unit maker uh, like we're making widgets like we're making something as opposed to what are we trying to do what are the kind of conversations we're trying to do and, and I think that we have shrunk the imagination of our country because of it that as artists if we're not going into ideas of diversity and if we aren't prototyping those stories for all the country to see, then we are, we are creating distraction rather than engagement in what it means to be Australian. And that that's our job. And if we're not doing that job, we should just shut the fuck up and move over and let someone else who's doing that job do the job. Uh, unfortunately, I think governments have 
become more and more uh, supportive of the widget mm. rather than the art, and that they have lost the the ability to articulate why the arts are important. If we go back to the 70s, there were arguments that, that created the Australia Council, that created this sense of we were pursuing a national identity, we're pursuing something that is meaningful for our country, and it shifted in the, let's call it the early 90s, mid-90s, into something that I think is anti-art. And the elite artist has become this thing that we just go, oh, we don't, you know, because of the subjectivity of what we do, we've just gone, the elite artist, well, you know, unless they're winning an Oscar, you know, unless there's some kind of big PR thing, we don't necessarily believe in it so much. And governments now have to relearn the arguments for the arts, and we can help them. We can give them that kind of vocabulary, I think. When you, um, <coughs> the Sydney Festival in particular, because it's the one you're artistic director of, um, I'm interested to know how much of a blank canvas is there and how much of a kind of, and how much of the blank canvas may already be filled in that you kind of, that, you know, you've got to give A and B and C. I mean, what, what, what sort of, yeah. what, what is it, what, what's the landscape when you walk in the door? Philosophically, yeah. they say blank sheet. Yeah. And then they say, but you need to, to get $800,000 a year in private philanthropy. So that's $800,000 that individuals have to give to the festival. And you go, how do you do that? And you go, well, you talk to them and you get what they're wanting to support. And you go, so they're already shaping what the program could be because yeah. you need to get that money. We need to get, like, the Star is one of our sponsors. And they give, you know, uh, maybe I can't say the amount, but, you know, a quite significant amount to the festival as they do to sporting events and a whole range of things. And you go, so that already shapes what you can and can't say sometimes. Um, we have heritage items like free concerts in the domain. And you go, well, and the, the, the domain costs just shy of $2 million to do, to put up the infrastructure mm. and to have three concerts costs close to $2 million. And you go, is that the best way to spend the money or is it not? What do you, you know, how, but governments like to have the big free activity and then suddenly there's this matrix that forms and already I'm, I'm trying to tinker at the edges of things. And they say, well, there might be political issues here or the public may, this might be a, a public relations shitstorm here and how do we look at this? Mm. And so you start to shape in different ways that revolution is impossible and it's only through evolution right. that it can happen. Yeah. Now, having said that, people might, certain um, special interest groups might go, where's my blah, 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 blah? And you go, well, now you have to pay for it. No, I don't want to pay for it because I've got it for free. And you go, oh, how do you... So you, it, suddenly things start to take a similar shape. And what I'm trying to do is say, actually, how do we free up money from one thing to spend <laughs> it on another? And that's what that's what we're in the middle of now. So are you able to kind of... Have you had any fully formed or partly formed ideas of your evolution? Yeah. Um, that you can share with us? The... There's things around George Street at the moment. I think that the city is in trauma, that the inner city of Sydney is in trauma, dealing with the short-term effects of what this all means. In the long term, it'll be great. And so what the Sydney Festival's doing is saying, okay, how do we make sure that we can return people back to George Street and they can come back and, uh, through prototyping it, enjoy what this new pedestrian and car, car less friendly, pedestrian more friendly, 
environment could be. But even things like talking to the Queen Victoria building, when it was designed, it's a beautiful building, it was designed so the shops would actually flow out onto uh, George Street. But over decades, because of all the traffic and all that kind of stuff, it has shrunk back into its walls. Mm. And going, okay, what's it look like in the future if we ask them to kind of step out onto the street? You know, all their boutique shops might be changed differently. We might see the fruit and veggie shops come back. Who knows? What's it like if we say um, uh, the, the notion of we don't have a town square? What's it look like if we actually artificially make one just for the time of the festival? You know, this, this notion of carnival, that if you turn things on their heads, suddenly you can see the world differently. This whole, you know, up is down, right is wrong, all those kind of things that if we can use that time to prototype change for the city, that would be great. At the moment, Barangaroo is one of those things that we're really looking at as it starts to become more and more dominated by privately owned space in what was a public utility. The, the park and the parkland was saying, OK, what happens if Sydney Festival occupies that space um, for the public good? big scale installations, mm. uh, performance works that over, over the next few years that the citizens believe that it is a public space, not a privately owned space, so that if anything wanted to be built in those parks that eventually will be designed, that the citizens say, no, you can't. It's interesting in Brisbane, and, and uh, excuse me if I use some Brisbane examples because um, Brisbane's so much better. Uh, <laughs> no, Brisbane's where I grew up. But when Expo happened in Brisbane... And they pulled down all that stuff and the government had all these plans for a new casino and a marina and all this private ownership and the public said, no, this has been our space. And so hence why South Bank as it is now, the kind of lovely kind of beach and pool and <laughs> public band- gardens. That's and Band-Aid Beach, isn't it? Band-Aid <laughs> Beach. I call it pee pool, but oh, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but that whole idea that that space is still a public space, it's been you know, encroached on by different kind of private building and stuff, but they couldn't sell it because the people believed it was theirs. And that's kind of what we have to do as artists as well, go, actually, what, you know, how do we project ourselves into a space for cultural good and bring people along the way, not through some kind of form of propaganda, but to ask the questions about what this space is. The cutaway was designed for um, uh, an uh, Aboriginal arts and cultural space, eventually. So I'm going, okay, what does it mean to be prototyping that for the, for the citizens of Sydney? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be occupying that space in the long term, maybe not in the next year, but in the long term to make sure that's possible? And so in some respects, my job as artistic director is to see potential in somewhere and jump jump down the track, imagine what that's... What, what that could be and open up the options for citizens to come along the way. So obviously there's a, a balance of stuff that may be created or commissioned for your festival and what you may create, uh, curate from yeah. the rest, around the rest of the country and, and around the world. So I, I think it would be very interesting to know, how's the travel? Travel. <laughs> Tell I us about have, the travel. Anyway, <laughs> I have travelled around the world four times in the past six months. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> one one time I saw in three weeks I saw f- around forty five shows. Um, this last trip I just did I saw about thirty shows, and so that's what what I love about it though, is you get to see certain patterns creating like almost in this country it's it, it's very difficult to see that 
number of shows you know in such a a short time frame uh, and so going to different festivals and seeing things you start to see trends and patterns and and some things that are emerging for me are uh, as kind of narrative things when I talk about these thematics I don't want it to seem reductive you know I don't want to seem that it's it's trying to stop us from thinking broader but I've seen a lot of stuff around sensory specificity you know blindfolding shows listening shows tasting smelling and I kind of go what's that about especially in Europe and I think there's something about a disconnect between the human the human body and the kind of virtual world that we're living in the digital world that we're living in and that artists are feeling that disconnect and creating work around it. But also this disconnect between, um, well, a, a kind of numbness that's being formed through this dis- disconnection between our democratic rights and our leadership. The austerity issues in, in, uh, in Europe, which are also here, are creating the sense of uh, disconnect between the people we elect and the people who should be in, really in charge, uh, and they just feel powerless and disconnected, and that this kind of sensory thing is really about engaging in the body, um, bringing the body back to life, uh, retuning the modern body for, for life again, rather than feeling it disconnected. Now, no artist talks like that, that's just me seeing a pattern. Mm. I'm also seeing some things around um, what I'm calling the street to the stage, the unofficial cultures that over the last let's call it 20 years, have become more and more official. So we're seeing street dance techniques become more uh, enshrined in you know, uh, ballet companies or, 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 or uh, different forms of street music, if you like, finding their way into opera houses and things. We in this country haven't done enough of that, I think. We, we do, do it in the small to medium sector. We don't see it in the big companies so much, and I think that maybe the festival can help prototype that a bit more. What are the big shows that demonstrate how that connection can happen? Um, I'm seeing things around... It, 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 it's too shrink, it shrinks it too much to call it about refugees, but I'm, narratives around fleeing, like what it means to leave somewhere that you should feel safe in. In this country, I think it's manifested in a number of ways. Yes, we, we have questions... We have, ideas of people arriving. We don't necessarily have an empathy or an understanding of why they're fleeing. Uh, We've disconnected from that somehow. And also about violence in the home. There's a kind of sense of going, oh, but you should feel safe there. Why are you running away from it? And almost a blame the victim uh, conversation that's still happening. You know, so there's a, a, I think there are more narratives around that. And again, not about arrival. It's not, we get, we have dominant narratives about arrival because it reinforces, I think, white Australia's position. Mm. We like the idea of people arriving and what you know and what that means because it reinforces what our position is. But I think the idea of fleeing, why people leave somewhere, um, gives us more humanity, gives us more a sense of empathy, uh, sympathy for others. And of course, the indigenous story is like we, you only have to go just a couple of weeks ago. You use the word invasion, and you know people just hit the panic button or the telly does at least, and then and you go, what? It is an accurate use of the word, and the whole recognition discussion that's happening at the moment, or the constitutional change. You go, we still have very um, adolescent views about what Aboriginal cultural views are here, what our, what our joint um, 
custodianship as a nation is of the longest living culture in the world. We don't have ownership uh, amongst ourselves as citizens. And so how do we look, kind of look at that? They're, so they're the kind of four broad thematics that I'm really... Is that, is, and that's going to be in your festival? Uh, yeah, 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 look... You know, when, is, when is just one of the dates again? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll be going from the 7th of January mm. to the 28th of January. Right. So I'm interested in what, what happens on the 26th. Ah, interesting. What, one of the things I'm really looking at is I think language is the best way in to uh, a cultural understanding. This fascinating thing, most Aboriginal languages, about two-thirds actually, of Aboriginal languages don't have adjectives. You don't describe something through, you know... Um, blue or green or tall or fat or whatever. Um, you describe it through complex metaphors. You, you create a, a tall man is a tree man. And the more you can, uh, the more you understand the qualities of different trees, the more complex the metaphor can be. Mm-hmm. And so language is this, an incredible way in to um, understanding kind of poetic structures and whatever. And I don't, haven't done enough research with the local language here yet, but um, often when you're talking to Aboriginal people, you know, the idea, you don't interrupt an Aboriginal person. I don't know if you know about this. Uh, you don't interrupt them because, in fact, the way sentence structure happens is that often they could leave the most important thing at the end, which overturns the beginning. So the structure is, is built mostly for poetics, and then at the end there could be not. <laughs> so you know you're going ah. so if you interrupt someone halfway through you've got the wrong sense of what they might be saying anyway it, it's not a, a general rule so my feeling is going language is a great way of understanding place and Sydney's one of those places where the beginning of the conversation between <coughs> white and black in this country uh, let's say really started sure. and the 26th of January I don't know if people know the history of this the 26th of January is what was called anniversary day in the beginning of the colony and every state had its foundation day it's uh like in in, i think it's june 6 i think it is in queensland uh, because it's your foundation day when we federated um everyone still had their foundation days and it was about 10 years later that the federal government said oh actually we need a national day that unites us let's choose the 26th of january because Sydney is the be-all and the end-all. And it wasn't actually kind of officially ratified until the 1920s. And then it wasn't until, you know, the 1940s that the rest of the states actually kind of begrudgingly did it. And then remember that Australia Day, Invasion Day, only happened uh, on the closest Monday to the 26th, so we could make a long weekend out of it. (laughs) That stopped in 1994. So we didn't take it that seriously for a very long time. And it's only since 1994 that it's had to be on the 26th of January. And we, are, we use this day as this kind of sense of remembering, Thanksgiving, foundation, but it's an odd fit because it doesn't fit around the nation and it's an odd day to use. And we have no rituals around it. In America, when you have Thanksgiving, you know why you're doing it. You do these kind of things and you have a ritual that you spend. We have no rituals around that day. And it's a kind of, we still use it as a public holiday. We just go, oh, it's a day off. Oh, and next year it's on a Thursday, so I'll have the Friday off. So that's a four-day weekend. (laughs) But we don't think about what that day means. So part of what I'm wanting to do is prototype the idea of teaching Sydney uh, the national anthem and local language 
And on that day in the morning, that we gather people together and sing it to the governor. Wow. And so the governor hears both the language of this place and this anthem. And so we can go through a, some form of ritual through that day. And that we can start to prototype that. I've now joined the New South Wales Australia Day Committee as a way of saying, okay, we need to create a ritual here, not just go, what can we do on the harbour and what's the good TV moment and, you know, what's the flags and, you know, do I have little tattoos and flag around our neck? What are the traditions? And, in fact, most people who are being naturalised on Australia have, you know, that, that day where there's big naturalisation ceremonies, they have a ritual around that, but most Australians have no ritual. And so this day is still meaningless. So if we're going to have it, let's have all the controversy around it, let's have all the storytelling around it, and let's... And I think it's becoming more and more like this. It's a day of complex ideas trying to battle their way through. That's what I think that day should be, and that's what I'm trying to do for the Sydney Festival. Yeah, why? Sounds fantastic. Um, I might fuck it up, but... (laughs) (laughs) Allowed to fail, allowed to fail. Um, Look, I'm sure we'd all love to kind of hear a little bit more about... Uh, your process as a director, as a writer in the rehearsal room, not, you know, outside of being a festival director. And, um, yeah, just tell us, tell, tell us a bit how, about the way you like to work with performance. Um, I think the, the beginning of all that kind of stuff is really about relationships. Mm. Um, so during auditions, I like the idea that, you know, as long as you can walk, talk and not run into the furniture, you've got some basic skills. It's then whether I want to spend, you know, three months of my life with you. Do I want to share things with you? Do is there is there something we have in common, or do I like you? Do have I got the ability to fall in love with you? Because I think that good theatre is an act of love. It's an act of generosity. Um, I love to share meals with people. You know, I love. I'm I I cook. The the most I, most people I've cooked for is sixty, where I cooked for the entire staff and actors at the time at the Queensland Theatre Company. I just wow. cooked for 60 people. You know, it was fantastic. It's great. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it's not unusual to have 15 people over for a meal. The, the, the great thing, um, I had a project. I had, I had to go to Stradbroke Island. I got off the barge. I went shopping uh, uh, at 4.30. Uh, I picked up food. Uh, got home about 6. Cooked and... 13 people turned up for dinner at 7. And I fed them all. And I love that. It's almost like directing itself. All the ingredients coming together. This kind of sense of acts of generosity. This sense of kind of bringing things to the fore. And then kind of vibrant, interesting conversations that happen over it. In some respects, the show is just a manifestation of those friendships, of those relationships. And sometimes you love to just have someone who's just the grit in the oyster, you know? Someone who's just going to rub you up the wrong way. And you go, oh, God, I hate you. Come over here and tell me what you think. Because <laughs> you've got to have that as well. The young Christmas, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But, all, but also, you know, the young kind of artist who's arrogant and has idealistically kind of thumping the table about ideas and, you know, all the older actors kind of rolling their eyes and going, oh, yeah, I remember when I was like that. But you've got to have that kind of mix of things as because well. Because you have to become a family so you have quickly. To and it's, yeah. it, it's not really a... It, it, it's not a cliche at all. I think, that, I think, I think there's, it's often a big danger to kind of say that that kind of, you know, we're all a family for 16 weeks or whatever mm. is... 
danger of calling it a cliche is, is really to kind of disrespect what it actually is about. It's about an act of love and about... Look, can uh, I get... My, my theory about actors, and please don't take this personally, it's just my kind of... what's going on in my head, is that somehow, as actors, you've got to keep your personality from completing. You've got to keep it open so that a role, a, a, a role comes in and fills you and completes you in that, in that moment, in that time. And that the danger is that if you don't get work, if you're not working, if you're not practicing your craft, keeping your personality open sends you crazy because you're not, you're not getting completed enough. And the danger of an artist who then completes their personality and can't let a character in, suddenly it's over. And we don't talk about um, transition enough in, in our profession. I think in dance, in circus, we talk about transition all the time. There comes a point where your body can't do what it needs to do. And for actors, I really worry that transition happens when you're at your lowest, when you are unemployed, when you feel you know, kind of the most lonely, when you feel the most kind of unsuccessful. Mm. And then you go, I now have to give it up. As opposed to going, I now need to complete myself and go through a transition process. Uh, and we don't think of it that way. We, we think of transition as failure. And it's really hard, I think, on artists. Because uh, we have a natural attrition that the number of, let's say theatre directors, I'm not even talking about actors, the number of theatre directors, as you get older and older, they just, you, there, there mm. is a pyramid, whether we like it or not. There are, there are pyramids that form and that the natural attrition that happens means that people will... People you saw 10, 15 years ago have these amazing careers are now no longer able to sustain themselves on one or two gigs a year. Actors who have been working, you know, cafe jobs for their whole career who go, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to have a family and I, I can't wait. I've chosen not to have a family and all these kind of it's things. It's mostly to do with the country we're in and the size it is and also the fact that, you know, culture is, is so much of an add-on, as yeah. you've said before. I think... Um, but the number of people who call themselves artists now, there are over 40-odd thousand people in the country who call themselves artists. And you go, um, you know, that's a really, really amazing figure. Are they, do they all have sustainable careers? I don't know. And I think that the, this kind of idea of uh, we could all be there or, you know, we don't think about transition is driving a lot of the kind of independent theatre, or oh, we can talk about this, yeah, the sure. independent theatre movement, which... I've got a strong <coughs> opinion about, which not everyone agrees with. Yeah, let's talk about that, absolutely. Because I think if you work in independent theatre, you are investing in a show. Now, that investment is both, you know, your time, your money, your energy, your creativity, and that there must be some return for that investment. Now, if you think of that as a kind of commercial structure, you know, you might be very willing for a very long time to keep investing in things so you grow and you kind of are able to develop. In certain environments, I go, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. It's like, why should universities be the only way you train or learn? Why can't you do it in other ways? But now what I'm seeing is funded companies becoming more and more involved in this model. And I go, uh, but that's why you're publicly funded, is to support artists. Mm. And the argument is, well, but I can, as a funded theatre company, we can now spread we can spread more opportunity amongst the community so they can grow and, and do that stuff. And we can do that if we don't pay them or we don't pay them as much. And I really worry about that because if there is no trajectory, if there is no way of having a sustainable 
Korea, then what we're doing is returning to, I think, the bad old days where it just becomes everyone's hobby. Absolutely. Mm. And you don't get a chance to a transition because you never become Never get that. And you also, <coughs> um, because of the nature of the beast, um, we, we never see designers grow because they're only working in unpaid environments that they don't have anything to play with. Or we don't see how, like, I think an artist who's working full-time on their craft can do a much better job than someone who isn't. Well, no offence. I don't mean that as an, as an offensive comment. But I think if this is your profession, you profess this to be your career, then, you know, you can do better work if you are supported to do it. Mm. That if you play your role in the tribe, be the storyteller of the tribe, the dancer, the person who's the best, who can lift everyone's spirits and kind of create narratives and stories that can lift the whole tribe up, then you deserve to be looked after by the tribe. And I think we're seeing, as you were saying before, this diminution of the responsibility of the tribe to look after its artists, mm. led by governments and, and economic thinkers who think that the arts has no material effect. I should tell you the story. I, I've just come back from Bogota in Colombia, and they had this amazing theatre festival, like extraordinary theatre festival. Um, and crime <laughs> drops in that city by one-third during the festival. Now... Whether that's all the artists are criminals or not. <laughs> but it says something makes about that their argument is because it makes the city happy. Mm. And making the city kind of uplift creates an environment in where those who are unhappy also get it. You know? So there, there's these kind of intangibles that we talk about. And if we keep uh, kind of demoting the artist, I do worry about that. But also, you know hand in hand with that is the artist has to play a role in what society is doing and if we just do it you know if we climb up our ivory tower and think I'm the artist you know I remember one one particular director used to count the number of people who walked out of their show going and seeing that as a badge of honour and I go oh well you know people can leave if they want to but don't think of it as a badge of honour think of it how would I talk to them how can I get them involved in the, in the ideas of this show? See them as a challenge, not as a, you know, well, fuck them, who cares? So for me, I, I, I am truly worried that our desperation to work will drive our industry, our community, into unsustainability. And we will see even a greater uh, difference between the large funded companies and the small to medium sector. I think we we're about to see it. The, the rumours I've, I've heard already is that about 40, in the small to medium sector at the Australia Council, about 45 companies were seen as, yep, these were crucial to fund, and only about 20 of them will be funded. That's what I'm hearing. Mm. So we're about to see the small to medium sector really get crunched. And what that'll mean is, do you continue to work in that, that environment for no pay? Or do you say, actually, we need to find a new model or, or do something? And we don't think about this. We don't talk about it because we're worried about hurting people's feelings. And or going, offending you, government. Or offend, offending government. Or it's time <coughs> for you to transition. You know, this is too hard on you. It's time to transition, perhaps. Or how do we make more space for you to do things? And during, you know, this last, I guess, couple of years of the, the present government and, and these sort of things happening, how, how concerned have you been about the leadership of your colleagues yeah yeah um, with regards to you know cuts in in 
in major companies and small medium companies and stuff. I mean, how how do you see that playing? How has that played out? Do you think? I worry that the large company, the the Brandis cuts, were a fucked move. Let's just it, it was absolutely like the idea that you could wake up on the morning of the budget and hear that let's call it about twenty seven thousand twenty seven million dollars in arts funding was going to disappear every year for four years. That's what it was. And you go, when you think about taking out $27 million from the arts ecology, like you go, what? Uh, and then they said, oh no, but we'll put it back in through this Catalyst program. And we've had 12 months where that money hasn't been circulating. And the... So uh, just explain, the Catalyst program being the, the discretionary... Yeah, Brandis so fund. Brandis set up the Catalyst Fund, or it's actually called... <laughs> Uh, Napia, or no Pia, um, Nipa, the something for excellence. For excellence but it's been rebranded as Catalyst. Catalyst, sorry. When they sacked Brandis, they gave a new name. Gave a new name. Yeah, like and, and, and also gave back to the Australia Council, I think it was $8 million a year. Oh, yeah, about 35 total. Up That's right, yeah. So, so they gave back some money and they said, oh, we should all be happy now. But in 12 months, the removal of $27 million out of the arts ecology is apparently going to have almost a half a billion dollar effect on our livelihoods. Uh, tours falling over, small companies not being able to offer contracts, people moving on, half a billion dollars over the next few years as it rolls out and we see the after effect of it because of bad policy. And this is one of those things you go, whether it's personal or not, I don't give a fuck. Good policy should be that you go, yes, we want to do this, great, we will give you we will consult, we will make kind of decisions, we will kind of follow through things. And, but this decision is, is absolutely am, amazingly stupid. And that the large companies, the large companies were totally protected from it. Mm-hmm. And there's already a schism. You know, the, the, I was on the, um, what was then the theatre board of the Australia Council in 1993 when we were saying, when the major theatre companies anyway were all part of the same pool. And we were looking at addressing the criteria of the Australia Council equally amongst small to medium sector, large companies, all that kind of stuff. And we found that basically you could take you know, several hundred thousand away from each of the big companies because they weren't occupying the right territories and that money could be better spent somewhere else. As soon as that kind of happened, the, the big companies went to government, went and changed the structure and created what, was, what has now become the Major Performing Arts Board. And the schism started. This idea that the ecology is a two-tier ecology, actually more than three-tier perhaps, um, you know, the kind of independent, the small to medium, and the, 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 the large companies. And the large companies got the lion's share of the money, but also protected and uh, indexed by CPI, and also access uh, special monies along the way for special projects. A great thing to happen. Marvellous, wonderful, if you can bring everyone else along with you. This schism, I think, is, crea- is created even more so now since the brand is cuts. And the small to medium sector will be devastated. There, there is no way that all the companies that are existing now will survive the next year. Um, they just can't. The, the money is just too great a loss. So what responsibility do the large companies have and the artistic directors who are the highest paid artists in our ecology, what role do they play in leadership? Um, I came out early with some statements 
stuff, uh, and eventually um, Kate Cherry at Black Swan and Geordie Brookman out of State Theatre Company, South Australia, came out making statements and being involved in different kind of protest movements. But it was interesting, out of Sydney and Melbourne, there was that rumour that George Brandis had rung the chairs of those organisations and told them not to make a statement against the government. Um, and even anecdotally, I've heard things that there was a, um, a sense too that this new fund would be open to them. So that self-interest drove this idea that they would or couldn't, or they wouldn't kind of get involved in it and stuff like that. Uh, and even privately in conversations, this, this sense of going, well, look, it might not be a bad thing, da-da-da-da. And I was gobsmacked because, you know, my whole career, number one, I didn't have to pay for my education. I went to university, didn't have to pay for it. So sorry to say that. Um, number two, I grew up at a time when funding small to medium companies was kind of the, the way to go and to develop careers. And that my career trajectory is based on that form of support, but also the idea of um, uh, Indigenous uh, storytelling was more and more important and through all of that support I've garnered skills I've been able to build my articulation around ideas, I've been engaged in a whole lot of debates and discussions nationally and internationally because of that support and now I'm seeing that whole middle ground, that pathway, that bridge that I crossed just disappear and going, how will people be able to get in charge of these large organisations? And I think we're now seeing more executive producer, executive managers of these large companies rather than artists. Because artists are no longer, or maybe perhaps not, as skilled because we haven't had those opportunities as much. So in the long term, I think it'll be interesting to see. So in a nutshell, I think that we have to hold the artistic directors of large organisations to account. And we have to say, you are our spokespeople, not just for your own organisation, but for our industry, our community of artists as well. And if you're not doing it, no one else has the structure or the power to do it. Mm. Easier said than done, I know, but you know that's what it's about. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of long associations with performance or mentorship or how that all happens. Um, and I've been reading a little bit of stuff. I think I read something Stephen Page said. Oh, that <laughs> 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 Funny enough, he said he can get nasty if you <laughs> 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 We'll keep those last 30 seconds on the podcast, Merrick. Yeah, um, yeah, we love it. But that's just his love for storytelling and his energy and the way he works with actors. He's directed every black actor in the country, and that's amazing. He's waved his little black wand over so many great actors that people call him Nana. Yeah. Um, those actors obviously include Deborah Mailman, Ursula Jovich, Leah Purcell, Roxanne McDonald, Wayne Blair, Luke Carroll, Rachel Mazza, David Page, just to name a very, very few. But it must give you an enormous sense of, not pride, but enormous sense of happiness to be at the start and to continue that kind of relationship with, with, mm. with, with such extraordinary performers and, and, and to know that you played a part in both their and your development. Yeah, it's interesting because um, it's a thing about collaboration too. It's it's um, sure you give them their first jobs or you kind of you, you do things, but there's something about uh, it's not altruistic. 
you benefit by working Absolutely. with really good people, yeah. you know, and they challenge you and take you to new directions and all that kind of stuff. And that the, in some respects, me moving into being a festival director is also acknowledging that that cohort of amazing, talented people have all moved on to do other things. And so I feel a bit lonely in a rehearsal room without them. So like a Wayne Blair doesn't act anymore because he's directing amazing yeah. films and the, and Deborah Malman's had two kids and gone on done all the TV work so and Ursula is going off and doing things so there's a part of me that I, I feel in fact they've outgrown me they've gone on to something amazing and I'm still doing the same thing I've always done so the idea of um, my making career uh, is coming to a close and when I talk about transition I, I look at it myself I go actually do you think well who knows uh, Robin Archer said Actually, what you might just you just might be tired, Wesley. You might just need time out. But my making career is one in which what I really want to do is grow into my elder status well. Mm. And sometimes it's hard to do that if you're having to survive and churn and get work out. I'd love to do one show every two years. That kind of sense of just deliver this thing and go, that's what I think is really important at the moment. Mm. But, you know, when I was freelancing, I was doing six shows a year. Mm. And that's a lot that's you know every each show takes at least what let's call it seven weeks to rehearse and tech up and stuff and then another let's say a couple of other weeks so that's you know let's call it three months well let's call it two and a half months so doing six shows is overlapping everything all the time and just and i don't know what directors get paid somewhere around 12 to fourteen thousand dollars to do a show so if you think times that by six that's amazing that's a great living but it means that there's no reflection time there's no and you're churning and you're just responding to whatever people are giving you uh and it it, it is difficult and what i've loved about working with these incredible group of actors mm-hmm. is that they i call them the family they yeah. literally are the family sure. and you get new ones in jimmy barney's come through and done things and miranda tapsell and and you go, yeah, I gave them their first job or I gave them their second job or their third job and then they've gone on to do other things and you've got to be happy to, to let, like a teacher does, you know? Not that I'm a teacher, but, you know, you go, I'm really happy to have helped them do what they do. They're not always available to come back and support the things you're wanting to do as well. So you've just got to be happy that they're doing it. Um, and that it's not about... That's why I kind of... I step back from the teacher thing because I go, actually... The relationship is one in which they're mentoring me as much as anything else, and they're challenging me to to do bigger and better things. Um, and in terms of the journey <coughs> that you, your family, that family you're talking about, has mm. gone with Indigenous theatre, what the last twenty or so yeah, yeah. years, I read a lot of stuff. But this is to me the most interesting <laughs> thing I found. You said I've started defining Indigenous theatre by its benefit mm. to Indigenous people. I'm asking who is benefiting most from this. So when Leah Purcell plays Condoleezza Rice and stuff happens at Belvoir, you can ask, was that an Indigenous piece of theatre? Maybe not, but the benefit to her was huge as an Indigenous artist. She got to redefine things and she's not turning her back on her blackness. I thought that was a really fascinating... You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, people, you know, uh, especially being the colour I am too, that in fact my my own grandmother my aboriginal grandmother said you don't have to be aboriginal you know she said you don't have to be because you know you can just disappear into the but she that was her generation was you know she kept 13 kids together you know during really hard times and 
and the church was a very big part of her life. And in fact, you don't get a name like Wesley James Enoch by accident. <laughs> so the, this whole notion of, for her, Aboriginality was always such a burden because it was something she was battling, uh, the perception of her and her family the whole time. Um, so, so for me, this sense of, you know, uh, just, you know, you, you don't have to do that. Why don't, you, why don't you work on classic plays more? Because, you know, you don't want to be pigeonholed. And I go, but I, I, I don't mind. In fact, it's, for me, a great boon. Like, I feel really sorry for non-Indigenous artists who don't have such an incredible you know, body of things to talk about, don't have a kind of social purpose about their work. My, uh, I remember talking to, to different artistic directors and they go, what do you do? You just wake up and go... I'm going to make art today. <laughs> yeah, but isn't there a purpose to it? Or isn't there a way of doing it? Or isn't there a kind of responsibility to a community? Isn't there, you know, ways of doing it? And they go, I just have to use my imagination. You go, yeah, but even your imagination is... And what I realise is that most artists, even though we live, live examined lives and should live examined lives, people don't question their cultural um, perceptions. They don't... They, they, they treat it like air. You breathe it in, you breathe it out. You don't really think about what you're breathing unless it's hurting you or there's something going wrong. And for a lot of artists who, not just uh, you know, Indigenous artists, but artists who don't fit into the, the status quo, be that through um, cultural backgrounds or, 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 or gender or uh, uh, sexuality, all those kind of issues, you, know, you have to, by your very nature, question everything and go, what am I doing, how am I doing it? And the, the challenge for artists who do live in the mainstream is to also have that kind of discipline. It's in fact a gift to me. I think my Aboriginality is an absolute gift because it gives my work uh, a gravitas and a purpose. And it gives me a way of talking to people about ideas that I think are important. And that for non-Indigenous artists or people who, who are working in the mainstream, that I think sometimes you can get lost in just kind of the malaise of it all because you're not spending your time deconstructing it and constructing it differently. In fact, they say if you aren't deconstructing it, you are in the process of constructing it. So if you aren't kind of pulling it apart, you are just as uh, culpable for, for building patriarchy, say. Sure. I've seen you talk a lot also about um, in the general... In the general sense, the rise or the growing uh, indigenous middle class, oh, and I'm me. fascinated <laughs> as to how you think that is and will affect indigenous audiences, indigenous performers, both at, at the moment and into the future, and also and also our culture generally. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, defining middle class is very difficult. I think I think as Australia, we have a natural kind of resistance to the term middle class, and yet we are, by and large, mm. a very middle class society. In fact, we've forgotten that our lifestyle is not standard of living, you know. We think of lifestyle and standard of living as the same thing, but in fact, you know, having a good standard of living is, you know, uh, having a roof over your head, having food and all that kind of stuff. We now think of standard of living as, well, I want to be able to afford my big television or my two cars or my McMansion or my overseas trip and all that kind of stuff. And I think for Aboriginal Australians too that what, what, we're, what we're seeing is opportunities for education, opportunities for economic development, um, 
the idea of health, uh, uh, housing kind of outcomes. The whole closing the gap thing is interesting for me because in, in one way, it's really good. In another way, it's actually still a perpetuation of the, def- uh, de- the deficit model. Mm. You are not like us because you don't have these things. But in fact, there's a kind of cultural angle of all that stuff. So I'm saying the, the Aboriginal middle class is basically just coming, back, coming to par where we have access to education. Uh, it's hard to think of it this, but um, um, free access or equal access to education for Aboriginal Australians only happened in 1972 when I was three that all, all the state laws could change to make sure that Aboriginal kids could go to school anywhere that white kids were at. You know, up until then, the principal had the right to refuse to enrol Aboriginal kids. You know, what? It's weird. Parity of pay only happened in 1971. So it's been a very short time in my lifetime sure. that these changes are occurring. And what's great is that we're seeing such a rise. In fact, the Aboriginal uh, population of the country is growing exponentially. And I think it's 50%, don't quote me on this, but I think it's about 50% of the Aboriginal population is under 30. Because infant mortality rates have dropped so, so much that there are more young people than there are older people in, in, in the country. So we're seeing a rapid change in the demographics of Aboriginal society and we're seeing that these cultural norms are shifting very quickly as well. There's also what I, what I think is a, a strong kind of intergenerational conflict happening where older generations who are often, I'm talking now people over 55 in that kind of realm, 60 perhaps, uh, who haven't had the benefit of education or health or housing, um, who've spent time being incarcerated, a whole range of things like that, that there's, uh, there's this tension between the younger generation who is avoiding that. Um, and there's almost a, um, how do you say this? A kind of tension, like a, a an urban initiation that says that you're more Aboriginal if you, you know, haven't been educated or you are sick or you are um, uh, living it tough or been to jail and all those kind of things. So there's this interesting tension happening within Aboriginal communities as well. Um, interesting. I'd like to um, <clears throat> expanding upon that to the wider questions of like diversity, mm. particularly in, in our industry. Um, our performance conference, of, what was it, no, 2014, um, which celebrated 75 years of equity, which was great. Mm. Um, we made a decision not to look back and sort of talk about you know equity in the 30s and the 40s, 50s, 70s, but to actually build that performance conference around um, diversity. So basically every single symposium, conversation, mm. whatever was was about looking forward. Um, and the performance conference that's going to be, that's planned for when is it next year, Mary? Or December this year. December this year um, will be the same kind of thing, except based around gender equality. Yeah, yeah. So as the artistic director of the Queensland Theatre Company, mm. 2010 to 15, was it? Mm-hmm. No? I'd like to, what would your scorecard to yourself be on diversity and gender equality? It was tricky. Uh, and, and colourblind casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, frankly, this is a personal thing. I don't really believe there's such a thing as colourblind casting. I think that the actor brings to the stage their cultural uh, energy, that their skin resonates on stage, and that as a director, I like that. I like kind of having 
you know, the different resonance on stage, but also, you know, a tall person, a blonde person, you know, a short person, a, you know. Like a perfect example of that is, is, is Ursula Jovic in um, uh, the... Golden Age. Golden Age, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Like where, that you see their skills as an actor. Mm. Actually, I've got this theory about, in Australia, we still, we still are relegated to the subjective measure of skill. We kind of go, I like them, I don't like them. And that if, if, I like, if I like an actor and what they've done in the past, I'll ask them to come and do that stuff again in my show. Which you kind of go, but they're an actor. Like I remember at one casting thing, someone said, you know, oh, uh, they, we said, oh, they're a good actor. Yeah, they're a good actor. Um, uh, well, this would be a great role for them. Oh, they've never done that kind of stuff before. <laughs> you go, but they're an actor. You know, a good actor can do that. They can transform for you. Oh, yeah, but you know. Why don't you go with this actor who knows how to play that kind of role? And you go, what the fuck? <laughs> Whereas in, in, I think in, in the UK in particular, there are objective measures of skill. Um, this broad generalisation, but you know, I think Shakespeare is a great objective measure of skill in the UK. You can do Shakespeare, you can't do Shakespeare, you're a good actor, you're not a good actor. And so colourblind casting's more, well, that what we call colourblind casting's more prevalent there. And what we have to get over in this country is that you can have great actors who are great actors, you know, that they, it's not about what they look like. And also, whatever you pigeonhole them in doesn't mean that they pigeonhole them in that particular either acting idea or cultural milieu. That you're, or Deborah Malman, you go, doesn't matter, she can flip from here to there to here. She can go do black comedy, she can go do, uh, um, you know, paper planes. She, she doesn't have to be kind of pigeonhole. In fact, she's got more work opportunities perhaps because she can skip around the place. But we don't think of actors in that way. Um, so when it comes to gender, um, in the end, it just becomes, it comes down to hard numbers. Mm. You go, okay, let's do the hard numbers on it. And I would say at Queensland Theatre Company, uh, it, there was this kind of pendulum swinging kind of stuff. You would go, ah, there are... Um, these many women, then you go, oh, what about this, and writers and directors, and you keep going back and forward. And it's tricky because in one year we had uh, uh, close to 50% women writers, and then the next year we had, and maybe only two women directors, and the next year we had 50% women directors, but only one play written by a woman. You go, fuck you, how do you... What's <laughs> the, and even, like, last year was a great example. And we we found it's easier when you expand the numbers of people that you that you or the so last year at Queensland Theatre Company um, they employed one hundred and twenty three actors performers the the annual average was forty five so we grew the number by doing more touring and stuff like that and we found that you could do more diverse programming and more diverse uh, casting and we found that there was a underrepresentation of women. And so we created what we call the Diva program, where we said, okay, let's find these women, put them in the centre of the decision making. What do you want to do? Now, the lovely Carol Burns, may she rest in peace, the yes. lovely woman, decided to do uh, Samuel Beckett. And we went, ah, oh, that's a fucking male writer. Okay, but that's what she wants to do. Mm. She wants to play Winnie in Happy Days. Bang, done. That's what she wants to do. Let's make it happen. Uh, and so you go through these processes of putting women in the centre of the decision making. So sometimes the numbers go one way or another, but you just keep going, what's... In failure, you learn. As long as you don't kind of... a happy, just kind of failing year in, year out. But you keep measuring and keeping a mindfulness to it and saying, 
you know, well, let's, let's readdress this and let's readdress this. And what relationships are you forming with directors and writers in that case? And in last year, then we went, okay, let's commission three, three women writers. Bang, done. And then we'll do creative developments around another four women's projects. Now, they didn't end up on the main stage, mm-hmm. or they haven't yet. You know, they're in process. But that's how you've got to keep going. You've got to keep going, we're about to fail. What are we going to do about it? Are you optimistic as a, as a nation, a theatrical nation? Look, to be doing? honest, I, I, I'm not that optimistic. Um, only because... Okay, <laughs> only because I'm seeing the economic arguments take over yeah. and not the cultural ones. And so the economic arguments by their very nature about the about precedent... What has worked in the past, yeah. rather than what I think are cultural and artistic arguments, which are how do we imagine the future? And the more precedent we use to make our decisions, the less adventurous we become. And so I worry that the large companies are going, this is what's sold in the past, let's do this, mm. instead of being more adventurous about the way they think about it. So um, maybe I shouldn't be so pessimistic, but I think it's better to be pessimistic because it forces action. Sure rather than optimistic and hope that it'll kind of come together. And self-analysis too. Yeah, self-analysis is so important. Don, um, we are out of time, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Wesley, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Um, Over the next three years, is going to be an extremely interesting place to be in January, and we wish you all the best with Sydney Festival. And isn't that refreshing as performers to hear a director and an artistic director describe his role as being someone who serves? Um, so, thank you so much, Wesley. Thank you, thank you, Simon. Can I say too how great it is that you've all joined the union? And it's all part of how you see your career. Because I think that collectively, the sense of family that's beyond just you know, the, the, the going and working on a show, this idea of how we collectively think uh, and how we make change is very important. And that I feel that the union is one of the, the most important structures that we have in a world where we are mostly freelance. So it's a very powerful thing. And just to celebrate the fact that you are a member and that you think of it as important to be a member, because many people don't. And the more we can spread the word that it's important how we work together, the better it is for everyone. So congratulations to you. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.